Mr. Reed, great guy. He was 78 years old when I bought the business. By that time, he was just coming in signing checks, and he had a general manager. That general manager was wearing all the hats. So the company could never grow more than what that one guy could do, right, with all mm -hmm. of his responsibilities. So I started taking things off of him immediately and pushing him to other people, hiring more people, right? And his light bulb went on in his head, right? I said, I said I'm not taking you out, but I'm getting you focused on where you're mo the most value to this company is. And he's much happier. He was the first employee there 36 years ago, and he's still there. But now I've scoped his responsibilities, and he's less stressed, <laughs> happier. And I'm take, I, we are taking advantage of what he does really well. He's known in the Dallas-Fort Worth area as a guy that, it, you know, if he don't know the answer to the problem, that there's not an answer. <laughs> right? Yeah, he's one yeah. of those guys. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I got a lot of great people. Yeah. So my team is what makes Access Overhead Door work. But they look to me for the guidance. Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook. The podcast where we welcome business leaders, CEOs, and industry experts to discuss the rise to the top, building wealth, and real estate insights. Here's your host, Jeremy Spann. Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook. For more information on this show, you can go to our website, myexperiencedrealtor.com. That's experience with an ED. And you can click on podcast, download this episode, other episodes from all the different platforms. And of course, if you're looking to buy and sell real estate anywhere on the planet, even if it's not here in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, click on the homepage, click that find a trusted professional, and we'll make sure that we get somebody connected to you that absolutely looks after your financial interests when you're looking to purchase a home or sell your home. But we're not here to talk about real estate today. We are here to go back to that podcast button, scroll down to Jeff Bennett, and hit that read more. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeremy. Man, I really appreciate you coming. And we know each other for the audience is Amanda, who's also got an episode recorded here, helps run the community in the neighborhood that I'm at. And uh, so when I was getting Amanda on the show, she was like, you need to get my boss in here. Mm -hmm. And so that's how Jeff and I got to meet. And we're going to dive into Jeff's journey of how he has made it to this level of greatness because it was a smooth road, right? No. No road no. rash, right? No. I mean, somebody gave you a book and said, this is what you go do, right, Jeff? I would like to say that that's the case, but it's absolutely <laughs> not. We start every one of these off. When I started this show a year ago, my father-in-law said, hey, you got to do a joke. So I intentionally do bad jokes because it annoys my father-in-law. So you ready for it, Jeff? I'm ready. What would the Terminator be called in his retirement? No clue. The Exterminator. Nice. <laughs> they're not good jokes, no. right? No, they're not. I mean, I'm not going to make a career out of stand-up <laughs> comedy. <laughs> so I appreciate you validating. No, that was really bad, Span. Way to kill it. <laughs> right. So, Jeff... Currently, what do you do? So currently with my wife, I'm the owner of Access Overhead. It is a overhead door focused company, commercial only, based in South Fort Worth. Our address is Forest Hill. We have a second satellite location in Denton. I live up closer to Denton. And that second satellite location help us, helps us to, to grow and support the service side of our business from a standpoint of being able to get there quickly. But be that as it may, overhead door is a little is a little restrictive 
Because we not only do any and all types of overhead doors, we do, you think anything about a dock, dock levelers, doors, operators, uh, we do gate operators, which bleeds into access control. So think about a multifamily location, gates, operators, systems to let people in and out, RFID, stuff like that, remotes, uh, we do that as well. And then we also service entry doors. So every building that you walk into, especially a retail establishment, has a glass aluminum door, has a closer on it. Those things need to be serviced. So we do a plethora of stuff, right, out of both locations. And But Access Overhead Door, we acquired it 2018, the February of 2018, after a long career in corporate America. Well, let's dive back into where does Jeff come from? Wow. So I've lived within the Dallas-Fort Worth area within 100 miles my entire life. Okay. I spent one small three-month section in Phoenix, uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Okay. But we'll come back to that in a moment. So, but I graduated high school in Dallas after growing up a little bit in East Texas. And, uh, you know, there was, a, there was a couple of, very early on, I recognize today, there was a couple of major uh, happenings experiences during that teenage time that, as I look back, are very strong descriptors, if not outright, made me who I am today. Give me an example of some things. Well, a couple of those are divorce. It happens. I get that. It's a destroyer of families. We know that, right? And I'm not here to say whether or not somebody should do that or not, but it happened to me, right? I was the youngest of four. So when that happened, it was a total shock, and it led to me and my mom being the last of the family together. It led to the second thing, which I would say is is I got a hardship driver's license, right, when I was 14 years old, so that I could drive myself to work. So I had a vehicle that was given to me. I had a job, but I had to get there, so I went and got a hardship license. That first job was mowing pasture land out in I mean, you saw nobody. Mm-hmm. You got on a tractor. The, the rancher would have the tractor filled with gas, and you just mowed, right? So as far as, you know, worth work ethic, you know, it if you're going to do something, it's really up to you to do it. And, uh, you know, how much the exploding of our family gave me a different view of that when I was going to get married, right, that, you know, that wasn't going to happen. And my wife and I have now been together 30 years. Wow. Got two kids, 28, 27 years old, or 28 and 25 years old. But before we go there, so back, going back that far, those are two main things that I can look back on today that have been the foundation for, hey, you know, why you do what you do, right? And, uh, and how you get from position A to position B to position C, leveraging the fact that, hey, it's got to be done. It's going to get done. It's gonna, I'm going to be the starting point. I do need others around me. So, But that's where I started. Then from that point, you go, you fast forward to finish college at UTA. After high school in Dallas, finished college at UTA. Got a finance degree there. They didn't call it a minor back then, but I had a lot of accounting classes too. Right. So got out in the world. I had the opportunity to run, to get into being a financial analysis for a savings and loan during the RTC uh, <laughs> resolution <laughs> trust days. Yeah. What, t- t- for the audience, especially the younger audience, 
What is those days? <laughs> well, you know, I'm no expert, but I can say that at that point, the savings and loan industry uh, as a whole was deregulated, if you will. They were able to then make loans without any restrictions, uh, if you will. And they got very aggressive at that. And then there was a, uh, let's just say, a crash or a real estate crash or whatever you want to call it. But the savings and loans were investing in a lot of real estate. And so during the crash, these savings and loans, as before they were insolvent, they were foreclosing on a bunch of these real estate assets. Uh, the government created this resolution, resolution Trust Corporation. Can't, I don't know if I'm getting the acronym exactly right, but they created that to help smooth. And I was a financial analysis in the accounting department managing the books, if you will, for these income-producing properties. The, think of a shopping mall, you know, a retail space that the savings and loans own now. And then they had asset managers who were out trying to sell them, right? So I was there to make sure that the books were correct, the accounting books, and then the providing that information to the asset managers who were out playing real estate agent in one sense, trying to sell those assets. What years was that? Oh, what year was that? Those were the early 90s. Okay. Right? I graduated in 89 and went right into it. And I worked for two different savings and loans for a span of about four years. Yeah. What level of experience did you get by seeing all that madness go down? You know, it's, 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 it's a great question because in hindsight, and the older I get, the more I see. Right? <laughs> it's funny how that happens. Right? Right? <laughs> there were people around me saying, hey, we need to put together a fund and buy some of these assets. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't. Listen, I wasn't poor. Right. I had my, my I had clothes and food and all this stuff, but I didn't have any money. I didn't know what they were talking about. Right. So in retrospect, it would have been a great opportunity right, to be a part of that. But specific to now and what I could say is, is that there's there's always another day. Right. You know, the crash, then there's a rise again then there's another crash. And whether that's life or whether that's the market or whether that's real estate. It happens, right? So just because there is a crash, you know, be be comfortable that we're going to make it out, right? right? We're going to get through it. Yeah. And that's, that's the, really the funny thing is what goes up must come down at some point, right? Correct. And that's why you have a lot of people that create a lot of wealth is because when it's down, that's when they buy. And when it's up, that's when they sell. Right. I'm very fortunate to be in that situation right now where I'm doing mass acquisitions of acquiring two properties a week under the or Yeah, that's about two, two properties a week on the fund that I have. And the interesting thing is now being older, right, getting ready to turn that half century mark, learning what I've learned is now that I have this experience, this wisdom, learning through mistakes and everything else, had I been... 20, 30 years ago, I'd have been like, I don't know how to go to do this. Not because I wasn't able to go and acquisition and operate, but where do I find the money? Whereas now, when, I, when I'm doing speaking engagements or mentoring someone, I'm like, finding money presently is the easiest thing. It's, it's, you know, I look at people go, if you can't find money right now, you are looking in the wrong place because there are more money out there than there's ever been to, to do this, right? And I mean, like, I can't even, you know, as you and I were talking out outside before we walk in here is, I can't even, I sometimes have to pinch myself and go, I can't believe that, you know, I had this much money to go spend from these investors who have trusted me to be able to go do that, right? And, and it's just, it's really interesting how that experience goes because that hindsight 
right? Whether we realized it then or not is actually going to show itself again at some point to help us leverage things or motivate us to go do things like you buying a company in 2018, right? Mm -hmm. And, And it was taking a lifetime of experience, lessons learned, opportunities missed, some lessons hurt more than others, to be able to get to a point where you can go, yeah, I could take this and go do this, right? So you come out of the savings and loan. What do you, what do you go do then? Yeah, so one 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 other thing that, that speaks to my quote-unquote entrepreneurial bent, if you will. During that time, I had a business with a partner. And we were we were designing and building custom furniture. He was the talent, right? Architect by training. He was my roommate in college. And we had a master craftsman, Vietnamese gentleman, master craftsman on staff. He's the guy who did it all and was unbelievable. And we had a couple of high-end uh, designer clients in Dallas. And I kept the books and helped in the shop. But I we were doing that at nights and on weekends, right? And short story is, I decided, listen, I'm starting a family. I can't do this. So I know I totally, you know, let my partner down in one sense. And it did negatively affect the relationship. We're friends today, but I know it negatively affected the relationship. But bottom line was, is that that was my first, you know, kind of itch, scratching the itch, right? And then I, 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 uh, I buried it deep. And about that time, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, what can I do? What should I do? I was getting to the peck that I, that I was getting to the point that I was saying, um, sitting behind a desk, I'm a numbers guy, but sitting behind a desk eight hours a day is not for me. And I looked at the landscape and literally all my friends and or older friends from college slash fraternity life were all selling something, right? And I looked at them and to be honest with you, the simple decision was I know those guys. Respectfully, I know those guys. If they can do it, I can do it, right? So it took me a little while to get my first sales job with no experience, but I went to work for AT&T selling small business phone systems. Think about restaurants, small businesses that have three, five, six, seven phones. This was obviously the day before data, the day before <laughs> VOIP, the day before cell phones. So you had four or five phones all in a system, in a package, and you would sell that, right? So I did that for AT&T for about three years. And then I decided, okay, well, if I've chosen now the sales career, I'm going to go where the money is. And I, there's many places, but the money certainly is, was and is in IT. Hardware, software. I look at it that way. And I looked at the folks that I knew who were doing these things, and I focused on software. And so I went out and got a software job. And the interesting story about that is, is that I didn't have any experience selling software. So it's that catch-22 always, right? How do you get a job when you don't have experience, but you don't have experience, how do you get the job? So, using a, a recruiter, otherwise known as a headhunter, right? he put me in contact with a lady who was a sales manager at Computer Associates, big, huge, uh, multi-billion-dollar software company, enterprise software company. I went in for an interview, you know, went fine, right? And then I didn't hear from her. And uh, two weeks later, I check in with my uh, my headhunter. He goes, "Yeah, hey, no problem. I got your second gig. Okay, got your second interview." So I go there and I show up that day, get off the elevator. She's standing there and she looks at me with this weird look on her face. And I go, you weren't expecting me, <laughs> right? She goes, no, I wasn't. She, I go, evidently you weren't going to give me a second chance. 
She goes, no, I wouldn't. Right. And, you know, I, I guess that self-preservation kicked in. I said, well, tell me what I, since I'm here, tell me what I can do. Is there anything I can do to prove to you that you should give me a shot at this job? Right. And she thought for a moment, literally walked into the interview room, grabbed a bunch of uh, flyers, uh, information brochures about the software product, had walked out, handed it to me, said, here, go create a presentation, come back in two weeks and sell it to me. That's what I did. Got the job. Wow. You know, so it, making a bad, making good of a bad situation. So I got into IT, uh, excuse me, software sales. That was gosh, late 90s. 96, 97 timeframe and did that for a couple of different companies, Computer Associates. Then I went to the Platinum Technology, which was one of their competitors. Platinum Technology got bought by Computer Associates. <laughs> so you go to the competitor and they get bought by the other company that you just left. <laughs> yeah. Let's just say back in the day that Computer Associates, it was in the rumor mill. They kept a list of previous employees <laughs> who left. So when they would buy the competitors... Because that's what they did. Yeah. Right? By, their growth was by acquisition. Yeah. And they bought the small competitors, which is not unlike a lot of a lot of how a lot of big companies do that. Anyway, so I knew it was my time to exit. <laughs> In the detective's office, they call that a clue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Before they told me, right? Mm-hmm. And I'll come back around. That is something, not always, but I have tried to be in control of my own destiny. Mm-hmm. So I went out and found a job. And I got with uh, a company called Genesis Telecommunications. And this was 96, 97. And I worked for them for 18 plus or minus years selling software to uh, large enterprise customers that have contact centers, right? So us as consumers. So it was really, we were selling to big B2C type companies. So think about your telecommunication companies, your banks, your utilities. Well, those are big companies. Their customers are consumers. We as consumers are always calling in, checking on something, buying something, complaining, getting tech support or whatever. That software in the back end, right, helps manage those interactions. So today, it's not only voice. It's uh, website. It's chat. You know, it's email. So uh, great career there. Uh, great, some great people. Great bosses. Not so good bosses. I'm one, I'm one, though, that you can learn from anybody. And I'm a big believer in that you learn more from your mistakes. I learn more from my mistakes than I do my successes, I believe. And so, you know, a couple of great things about that company. I was an individual contributor for the first year, and then I got into sales management. And by the time I was done, I w- I'd moved from direct individual, you know, direct sales to managing direct sales to managing partner sales, because in the software world, IT world, there are distributors as well, partners that sell the product and add services to it. And, and then I managed, the uh, last thing I did was the North American Partner Organization. I never had global responsibility, but I did because I was part of a global company, get to travel globally for meetings, and uh, they had a terrific president's club. Right. So China, Argentina, France, Italy, Bali, South Africa, all of those president's clubs you earn. Right. Based upon what you do that year, you go to an all expensive, all expenses paid trip. My wife and I have been to all those together and it was amazing. But but yeah, that's where I went from savings alone into IT and where we got to where, you know, 2016 ish that itch 
started happening again. And I will tell you, too, I was getting a little, let's say, more experienced, if not downright old, (laughs) for that industry. Yeah. So, again, back to, hey, take your, you know, keep your own, take the destiny in your own hands. And so I started thinking about that. My son was already out of college. My daughter was a year and a half away from graduating. Both of them went to Texas A&M. And I said to my wife, hey, I really want to do this now. And she'll tell you I've been talking about it forever. But 2016, uh, 2015, I started thinking about it 2016. I didn't have a push yet, a rush, but I could see a couple of years down the road from a standpoint of where the company was heading. And, you know, again, back to the fact that I was very mature in that organ- in that uh, industry. And I spent 2016 learning how to buy a business. So when you say learning how to buy a business, tell me more about that. So, so number one, again, never done it. I had thought briefly about starting something on my own, leveraging the expertise and experience from the IT world. So think about a partner or a distributor, a service company, implementing the tool. That, and there's, there's literally hundreds and thousands of those companies out there, right? And I was like, you know, I want to break from the technology. I want to break from how you have to be, have how do you have to do business, the people you work with there? And so I said, okay, well, I'm going to buy an existing business. And I'll tell, I've told this story many, many times. I didn't know what I wanted, but I could tell you what I didn't want. After I started looking at places like bizbuysell.com, right? They, you know, you put in by county, by industry, by revenue size, and it'll pop up, hey, here's your, Target, here's your companies for sale. So, I okay, understand now where they are with the size. And by that, by doing that, I could also dial in the size of the company because I was willing to put certain parts of my financial wealth into the business, but I wasn't willing to put everything. I wanted to make sure my wife, <laughs> if God called me out the next day, <laughs> you're done, right? I wanted to make sure my wife had no encumbrances, right, on life after. Mm-hmm. So I spent a little bit of time there uh, analyzing the companies, the sizes of the companies based upon the down payments. I looked from the loan, the funding. Where do you go get funding? Is this something I walk into my bank again or what? Right. So after spending 2016, a very comfortable analyzing the market, what's for sale, I honed in on businesses that were in the one to three million in sales range. I had already gotten toward the end of 2016. I got to the point to where I'd talked to enough uh, and done enough research on the funding side to find out what I was going to need to do. A business plan. Was SBA loan going to work or not? Those types of things. So that's how that's what I did. That's what I spent 2016 getting my head around what I needed to do to buy a business. How many frogs did you kiss before you found your prince? Yeah. So 2017, biz by sell, when you show an interest, 90%, 95% of the businesses that are out there, they're listed by a broker, mm-hmm. business broker, and you have to sign an NDA to get the financials, right? So I looked at, a, I looked at hundreds of businesses, but I only asked for financials for about 20 of them, all right? And by that time, I had gotten to the point where it was either going to be something in construction or something to do with cars. And, I, and you know. Now, what was that? Cars was more emotional. Yeah. I'm a kind of guy I'd love to drive a different car every week. 
never have been there. <laughs> I'd like to do that. But, you know, so I was at that point, I was trying to make really good decisions. And I said, come on. The other thing I didn't want to have to do was work on the weekends. If I could keep from it and at that point in my career, my life. And I really didn't want to have an organization where I made my people work on the weekends. It's just me. Right. So the car business, you need to be on the you need to be providing service as well. Or if that or, or or maybe that's the only thing you provide is service. And you've got to be open one to two days on the weekend to do that. So I pushed that aside and then I focused on the construction companies that were available in that size. And, you know, I said I went out and got roughly 20 throughout that process, 20 different sets of financials. And pretty quickly, I came to the realization in my world, I, I said, well, there looks like there's three different types of owners in this small of a business. The most likely or the highest percentage were guys, gals who are really good at doing what they do. So let's use let's use HVAC for a moment. Right. Terrific HVAC guy, you know, as far as doing the job, but not so good running a business. Right. Never had any. Obviously, they never had any training. They just jumped in and did what they did. So their books, their financials were terrible. You couldn't follow them. There was a lot of questions. You know, what you got from an income statement and balance sheet really didn't look that great. And then you look at their IRS filings and you can't make heads or tail how they fit together. The second group of owners was a guy, continue with the HVAC example, and I'm not picking on HVAC guys, <laughs> but he was a good HVAC guy and a pretty good businessman too. But his, biz, his personal financial life and his business financial life were too intertwined. So, again, coming back to the financial statements, I'm looking at the financial statements. I'm trying to get a real value. The One of the things that you'll get, one of the things that's discussed is a seller's discretionary earnings statement, right, or SDE. And you'll get that from the broker. And that's basically saying, hey, well, this is what the owner takes out of the business. These are all the benefits that he takes that aren't easy to see, Right. Think about insurance, gas, uniforms, you know, dinners, you know, all these things that a business owner can do and, and legally write off, but sometimes they don't just pop out. You might see their salary, you know, or their draws. So anyway, that was the second bucket. And then the third bucket, which was the rarefied air in this size of business, was the guy who ran a really clean business. His books were very easy to follow and his IRS filings were very easy to follow. And at that, toward the end of 2017, that's where I arrived at Access Overhead Door. Great little company, 32 years in business with the same owner and 20 years at the same location. So the customer base was fantastic. Again, the books were easy to read. And that's how I got to, you know, Back to the question, it's how many frogs I kissed before I found the prince, right, so to speak. And I got, I got there and started negotiation with, with, negotiating with Mr. Reed on acquiring his business. So for the audience, right. so my experience is got an undergrad from TCU, got an MBA from TCU, been in different sectors of real estate, but I was a... Word business broker, right? Because there's a lot of vultures out there. Matter of fact, what I don't think people understand is in, especially in the state of Texas, is if you want to be in real estate, you actually got to go get some education and then take a test 
to get the certification. If you want to be a business broker, all you got to do is go down to uh, Staples and say, print me up some business cards to say I'm a business broker. And so my experience, matter of fact, how I got drug into that was another vet, I was a Navy vet, was looking to buy some companies. And if there's anything that I don't have, let me rephrase that. I have a lot of things I'm not good at, and I have a handful of things that I am scary good at. Some of those scary good at things are I know how to identify opportunities. I know how to read financials. I know how to analyze data. I know how to look at it and go, oh, okay. I know how to take the components that a company operates by and find out what story does it tell? And I love how you frame this up is you got businesses that are good at the trade, bad at business, good at the business, good at the trade, but so much commingling that you really don't know what's what. And then ones that are run very, with a lot of sophistication, very clean, right? It's not hard to follow the bouncing ball per se. And he was like, man, and that's what his frustration was. He's looking at hundreds of companies. He signed hundreds of NDAs and just looked at financials and just said, man, I'd rather if you just went and found me a company to buy that's not on the market. And he goes, because I, I know you know how to ask the right question. This is really what I learned out of my MBA. And it's what I learned when I was a police officer and I was a detective is it's not about finding the answers. It's about asking the right questions. And so I started that venture and I started looking at companies. He said, I'd like to find a niche company that's in a fragmented market. So fragmentation for the audience means there's a lot of separation. You don't really have any monopolies. You don't have, think of it as the difference between Starbucks and a mom and pop coffee shop, right? Starbucks are everywhere. But if you have a bunch of mom and pop coffee shops, they're run individually, right? And and so what I found in a niche market was manufacturing, more importantly, sign manufacturing, right? And so what I was fascinated by them, and I knew nothing about manufacturing, knew nothing about sign manufacturing, but I did know this. It's a niche market. It is a market where it's always going to have business mainly because also owning a restaurant for the last 10 years is businesses open their doors and close their doors every day or businesses are acquisition and a branding change happens. So there's a lot of sign changing that goes on, right? And then, so I started pinging anybody around that had a sign manufacturing company because I knew I had this particular buyer. Now, you being an owner of a company, how many times you get a letter in the mail. Hey, I've got a buyer, right? Which is all bullshit anyways, right? No, they have a group of people that signed up for their website to be potential buyers. Because what I didn't want to be was a tire kicker, right? Nothing. I've been telling my daughter, I say this on almost every episode. Time is a commodity you can't buy more of and you can't get a refund on it once spent. Reputation can only be built with time, not bought with money, but you can lose it in a matter of seconds and over a single dollar. And the biggest thing that will annoy me, any anything that can annoy me to the most grotesque, monumental way is for someone to waste my time. It annoys me. So I didn't want to waste anybody else's time. 
So one particular company out in Tyler, Texas, his name is Matt Nellenbach. He was the third generation of a 75-year sign manufacturing company, also a Marine, right? As a matter of fact, that's the reason he returned my email, right? Because you can call, send letters, and, you know, and I was like, hey, look, I'm, I'm serious. But I sign everything that I do, Semper Fidelis, right? It's Marine Corps saying, always faithful. Some people see it and they're like, what's that? But if you're in the military, you know what that means. And if you're a Marine, you damn sure know what that means. So because he's a Marine, he pains me and says, you're a Marine? Yep. So we communicate back and forth a couple times, kind of goes cold for a couple of uh, months. This is also what I've learned about people that want to sell businesses is when someone gets to the point, they're like, man, I'm ready to sell my business. Go ahead and add about another two years to that because it takes that point where they go, okay, I want to go do it, but I don't know if I want to let it go or all of this. And I'm sure you learned a lot through your negotiation with Mr. Reed and buying this company, right? Mm -hmm. Because you go all the way through it and you're like, man, you want to sell the damn company or not, Mm -hmm. right? And then, so anyhow, Matt reaches out and says, let's meet. So we meet halfway between Tyler and, and Fort Worth and sit down. And at this point, the buyer that I had, he had found a company. So we sit down and we're talking and I'm asking a bunch of questions. And at the end of it, I says, well, the person that I had that was really interested has already bought another company. Now, probably in a financial position to probably want to buy another company, but I just want to be transparent because several months have gone by. But the answers you're giving me to the questions I'm asking you is if I can dive in and analyze your financials and your systems, your practices, your supply chains, your inventory and everything else, if I can validate that, I don't need this guy. I can, I can, I can sell your company in a matter of seconds. But it was one of those companies that, and like you and I were talking about um, this week, building a, a, a maintenance company with two old Marine Corps buddies. And to the both of them, I said, the way this works is we build ourselves out of the business as fast as possible. Because the day the business can operate without your presence is the day that your business becomes sellable and worth more. Because now you open up it not just to somebody that wants to be an owner operator, you open it up to somebody goes, that's profitable, I can buy it, let's grow it, scale it, and so forth. So part of the issue was he was an owner operator, which there's nothing wrong with that, right? Is, but I would have said, what would happen if you were hit by a truck today? And he was like, well, I mean, people would have to know the different components, blah, 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 blah. And I said, okay. So we spent the next six months and I said, I'm going to do a lot of work on the front end. So the back end goes very, very smooth. Because a lot of business brokers are like, oh, you want to sell your business? And they'll have them fill out that recasting <laughs> sheet. <laughs> and then you look at it, you're like, oh, okay. And then when you go dive into it, now the potential buyer is having to spend a lot of time to go ask questions that they may or may not like the answers to, right? And so I was like, I want to build an offering memorandum with supporting evidence, going back to what I learned out of my PD days mm-hmm. of building cases that would get prosecuted through the DA's office. Very similar. It's funny how we take our past experiences and apply them. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, let's do this. So that way, 
and at the same time, during that six months, I was interviewing people to go, who's interested in buying a company? I got one coming up. All I can tell you is that it's in Texas and it's in manufacturing, but I'm not going to tell you anything else. And what I can tell you is the EBITDA on this, earnings before income taxes depreciation, is it is sitting with a very nice EBITDA with a three and a half multiplier. And so it was enough that I knew how to tell people enough to tease them to go, I would be interested in looking at that. But I also knew I was dealing with an audience that had kissed so many frogs of recasted balance sheets and everything else that they were like, all right, like it. So I built this offering memorandum, it's a 35 page offering memorandum with graphs, financials, whole nine yards, with supporting, hey, matter of fact, I had 10 years of taxes from them. I had 10 years of financial data. I had inventory sheets, supply chains. Who were the employees? How replaceable were the employees? You know, do, do they need it? Are, are they a niche type trade where they're going to be hard to replace? Or is this somebody you could just go down to the local hopping shop and say, who needs a job? I need you out here sweeping floors or whatever. And I built this entire, this entire book, right, that told the story. That way, as I built up and we were close to 100 potential buyers when we were ready to go to market. That way, by the time we got there, someone could read the offering memorandum and be a quick no, but a reliable yes. Mm -hmm. They could read through it. And so out of the 100, 50 of them read through it, went not interested in that sector. Out of the 50 that were left, they wanted to see the supporting financials, right, of which that disqualified about half of them. And then we got down to within the first six weeks we were on the market, we were down to the final two. Pretty quick, pretty lightning fast, right? And then out of the two, one was more serious than the other. And what I mean by serious is you can be serious that you want to go buy a company when you're ready to buy it. And then there's, I'm ready to do this right now. So Dan Verbowski was the one who turns out to also be a Marine and a fellow TCU alumni who I actually thought his personality and the personality of the owner were perfect. And I was very transparent. Whoever buys this company, and that's what disqualified a lot of people. They were like, I don't want to be an owner-operator. As I said, you're, you're going to come in and you're going to be an owner-operator. But what you need to do is this, you, you buy a company, you're going to have to be the owner-operator, but then work on transitioning yourself out where the company can operate without you. Then you can turn around and sell this stinking thing for a lot more, right? And, and so... And, so Dan, you know, got in there in the first three years, you know, called me actually almost a year ago and just says, man, I don't think I know what I'm doing. Screw it. Sell this thing at a discount. I just want out of it. And I said, oh, you're ready to listen. <laughs> and so since then, a year from a year ago, every Wednesday, well, except for this week, because I was recording this week, he and I do a 90 minute Zoom. Okay. I said, you don't have a manufacturing problem. This thing's been making signs for 78 years. People have forgotten more about making signs than you're going to learn. You have a people problem. Your assets and liabilities right now are in your people. So we need some people to transition out and replace them with the right people. And 
he was he was trying to wear every hat. And I said, that's the problem. You don't have enough bandwidth. You don't have enough time. You don't have enough energy. Let's focus on what I call the alligator closest to the boat, right? When you're a business owner, you're in a boat out in the middle of the water and there's alligators everywhere. There's some that are on the shore that you can see, but they're, they're not a problem yet. Some that are swimming out there in the lake, some that are close to the boat, some that are trying to get in the boat, and then there's some that you're wrestling with inside the boat. And I said, the biggest alligator closest to the boat that you're wrestling with right now is we have to fix your office problem. Because it doesn't matter if you make the best signs on the planet, if you are not collecting revenue and not paying bills the way they need to be paid, then there's no money left over. And it wasn't him. It was just he had all these moving parts, a lot of transitions, people coming and going. And I said, we're going to spend the next six months getting your office situation. And he's like, but I need to be out on the floor. I said, look, man, you're going to have to make a choice. What problem do you want to address first? I'm just telling you, if you address this, if you address the money part of this, where it can operate without needing you, then we can focus on the operations. And we did. We got him out of the office. And then now he's focusing on the operations because he's got to deal with the fabrication. He's got to deal with the supply chain. And he's got to deal with the installation and service. And I said, let's go deal with the installation next, the installation team. And I said, but let's focus on building a culture that attracts people to want to come here. And because we were able to do that, it started dawning on him. He was like, wow, I don't, I don't even, matter of fact, he since moved his office out of the office building and he set up an office that's out in the shop. I said, see, this is the first step to getting yourself out of the business because this can operate. All you got to do is have a weekly meeting and go, where are we at? Where are we looking? Oh, that looks different. What happened? This is what happened on that deal. Cool. So it's already handled. Yep. And then as he gets that done out on the operation side, then he won't have to be in either office anymore. But for the audience out there, when you normally go buy a company, that's not the experience you're going to get is having everything that was already vetted for you. As a matter of fact, we vetted it so good. Is uh, You're familiar with the no guy at the bank, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No guy at the bank is there to protect the bank. And that person is there to go, nope, this is too much risk, or we need this, or we need that, or we're going to have to have this, or you're going to have to put more money down, and blah, 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 to finally get the loan product. That way you can go do the acquisition. So funny enough, when you had brought up Origin Bank is at the time, Chris Hamilton was over at Origin Bank. So Dan said, this is going to be my banker. And I was like, oh, well, I've known Chris for years. Also an Army vet, right? So we knew each other. He's Army and Marines. So we were asked each other all the time. And then when, when Dan had told Chris that I was the one representing the seller, Chris went, then we're going to be just fine. I know Span knows how to do the due diligence. So when we sent him everything, we made it through underwriting in under 72 hours. As a matter of fact, he called me and said, hey, my no guy wants to take you out for a drink. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why? And he goes, because he's been no guy for 20 years. And he prides himself on being able to say no. And this is the first time in 20 years I had a company come across his desk and he was like, I, I, I got nothing to say no to. So people that are out there buying businesses or building businesses or whatnot, build it to that manner. So that way, 
at some point when you're ready to go or life occurs, events occur that require you to go, if you are present in the company, it's because you're bored, right? Or you just like doing it. But you, the faster you get to a company that can operate without needing you is, in my opinion, when your company is at its strongest. Because if you get hit by a truck, then that able to satisfy a lot of things, right? Because when you have 20, 30, 40, 50 employees, do you really want to be in a position that if you did get into an unfortunate fate, fatal accident, that now they're all going to be worried about not having a job because the company can't sustain itself because the company revolved around you, right? So it's really interesting when you talk about these three types of different elements that mm -hmm. you were looking at these companies. Mm -hmm. So I want to go back to something that you said, which was, you know, the books were easy to follow. Tell me more about that. So coming, going back to college, finance degree, comfortable with numbers and all that, got into software sales, still used that a lot, right? Because we had to do ROIs for our customers all the time, right? Yeah. Uh, return on investments. So, but I hadn't looked at that financials at that level of detail in a long time. Yeah. So I had to retrain myself. What am I looking for? What is this? What does this mean? Right. I retrained myself on cost of goods sold and, you know, all those things. But simply put, you know, access overhead door is a seller distributor of doors and gate operators. And so we buy all that. He bought all that from somebody right? and then he provided his labor. Right. And then there was a, so that's cost of goods sold, right? Revenue minus labor minus materials. And he's got a margin. And I knew what the difference between margin and markup is. <laughs> Tell, to dive into that so the audience understands the difference between margin and markup. Well, so easy math. I think if I can get it right, but if I don't, you'll get the gist. If, if, it's, if, you're, if you have a product that costs you $100 and you mark it up 30%, and you're going to sell it at 130, right? But then the math works when you sell it at 130 and you take out your cost of 100, then you have your the margin, which is $30. And in this, if I remember my math right, that's 23% margin. So I think people get confused. I'm marking my product up 30, 40, 50%. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's not the margin, i.e. what you have left over to pay all those below-the-line costs, right? When I say below the line, I'm talking about looking at the income statement and literally revenue minus cost is what you got left, and that's what you're going to pay everybody else that wasn't a part of delivering the solution. So think about the salaries of the owner, the administrative assistants, everybody else, the purchasing guy, the scheduling guy, the sales light guys, bills. light bills, rent, oh. mortgage payment, uniforms, everything else comes out of that number. Yeah. So that's the difference between mark, markup, uh, mark margin and I train my team. So you said a couple of things there. I'm in a consulting, I'm in a group of small business owners. We meet months a month, and, it, and the consulting group that, that we're a part of is a company called XM Performance. A guy named Ross Patterson has a great uh, product and a great team. But we get together and talk about what goes on in small business. And we get to see that, oh, we're all, deliver we're all having the same problems, same issues. 
Well, I'm the only one in that group who came from the corporate world and bought a business. Everybody else either started their business, so there's a couple of lawyers, right? or uh, there's the gentleman who owns uh, Print and Threads out here in Fort Worth, or there's a, and he started that, or there's a gentleman who took over a family business. So they've all grown up doing that, which is on one standpoint very, very, uh, very comfortable. Me, I told my guys real early, if I'm out hanging the door, there's a there's a there's a problem, right? Now I wanted to go out and see what they do. You know, and then get up on the scissor lift and look at and talk and all that. But if I physically have to go out and hang a door, then we're not doing that well because that's not my talent. It's mm-hmm. not what I do. I've never done that before. I'm the business guy. I'm the culture creator. I'm the financer. I got to make sure that we're putting all the pieces in place because, to your point, you know, uh, Mr. Reed, great guy. 78 years old when I bought the business. By that time, he was just coming in signing checks, and he had a general manager. That general manager was wearing all the hats. So the company could never grow more than what that one guy could do, right, with all Mm -hmm. of his responsibilities. So I started taking things off of him immediately and pushing them to other people, hiring more people, right? And his light bulb went on in his head, right? I said, I said, I'm not taking you out, but I'm getting you focused on where you're mo- the most value to this company is. And he's much happier. He was the first employee there 36 years ago, and he's still there. But now I've scoped his responsibilities, and he's uh, less stressed, <laughs> happier. And I'm take- I, we are taking advantage of what he does really well. He's known in the Dallas-Fort Worth area as a guy that you know, if he don't know the answer to the problem, there's not an answer. <laughs> right? He's one yeah. of those guys. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I got a lot of great people. Yeah. So my team is what makes Access Overhead Door work. But they look to me for the guidance and creating the culture and bringing the resources, both financial and people, right, to the, to the mix so that we can continue three years we doubled in business, doubled in size. So, you know. When you talk about double in size, will you tell the audience what that means? Well, the the business had averaged at $1.5 million in the three-year period that I analyzed. So, we did $3.1 million last year. Wow. So and that's, how, how, many, how many years did you get it there? Three years. Wow. A little less than three years, but I, I take, I call 2018 the first full year because we bought in February. So, about a 75 to 80% growth year over year? No. 33% growth year over year? Math for Marines. <laughs> this is the reason I use Excel sheets. <laughs> okay. All right. Right. But still, yeah. Yeah. I recognize significant growth. And this year, I can not I can tell you we're either going to be flat or, 50, or somewhere between uh, flat and 15% growth, mainly because it's just supply and chain problems. Supply chain issues. And I'm going to come back to supply chain issues here in a second because that is that is affecting everything. Everything. There's a couple of things that... So, when I was talking to Amanda about coming on the show, and she was adamant about you being on the show. And I actually... I've been very fortunate that we've grown to enough success where now when I record a series... Half the people that walk through this door and sit down, I've never met before. 
I've got people that want to come on this show, right? They've heard enough. They want to be out there. They want to tell their stories. I've built the audience up big enough. And so what I do is anytime somebody wants to is I have that Calendly link that I sent out, right? So that way I can do a quick 15-minute assessment of will this person be a fit for the show? I think your night conversation turned into an hour, actually. But I'd ask Amanda. I said, look, I have a lot of people that want to be on the show, and I have a lot of people that are good at what they do, but why? Tell me why. And she's like, you know, we bought this company, great company. I said, no, 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 no. Right? That's the vessel, right? Whether it's real estate, whether it's coffee cups, whether it's overhead doors, that's just the vessel that the business carries through. What are the components that move that vessel? And she was like, well, you know, we get this, we get that. And I says, no, 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 no. Why? And she goes, Jeff has created a culture that no one wants to leave. And I went, you just got my attention. She goes, I, I don't show up for a check. I show up because I love the environment my boss has created. And when you hear something like that, it, it, that's, that's what gets my attention. That's when I go, you know what? That is a leader right there because in order to create a culture in lead like that, you have to dive in and be as unselfish as possible. So that's the environment that you've created. And by the way, in a very short period of time. So to hear you talk about a GM who was the first employee that, hey, let's face it, when most people buy a company, there is a, there, you got to accept that there's going to be a lot of people that transition. Some because they don't get to carry their thunder anymore. Some because they might not like the news. Some of it because some people don't like change or ambiguity or any of this. But when I hear the original employee not only stayed when you bought the company three, four, four years ago? Three and a half. Three and a half years ago. Again, that math for Marines, I was trying to do it in my head. And not only didn't leave stayed and is happier brother that man that's the kind of stuff fairy tales are made out of right that's the kind of stuff people want and and that is so when amanda had described that and to hear you say that about the gm man good on you man good on you you've built something that look it's 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 Doors and RFIDs and gates like that, that's just a vessel. That's just a product, right? Now, I want to go transition to something over is because when you are the person that owns the company, employees many a times are one lane of, this is my problem. And when you're the owner, I'm like, and you have 35 people, you're like, but I've got 35 people with 35 problems, right? You have to... You're on. You're in, there's a reason you're in the big chair. There's a reason you took the risk to be able to go do that. And when you're doing it, you do have to look at all these different costs and margins and markups and everything else. Because let me ask you something, Jeff. Can you own a company that's very profitable but in cash flow? Correct. Right. Easy. Very easy. It's a big, and, big problem of the day. Big, huge, enormous problem. Because guess what? And I I got joke around as I go. The difference between being profitable and cash flow, cash flow is the money you put in your pocket. And when the money's outside the pocket, it's profitable, but there's no money in the pocket. See, the money that goes in the pocket is what you call cash flow, right? Mm -hmm. And if you don't have cash flow, then it makes it really hard. Or you're just working yourself in the ground because everybody else is getting paid except for you, right? 
And so having those elements, and then we come across this thing called a global pandemic that interrupts and disrupts supply chains, which, you know, I don't dive into politics on this show, but you got all these talking heads on whatever news channels going, we're fixing this. Guess what? You're not God. (laughs) You don't just get to go, I'm the president. I demand these are fixed right now. Well, guess guess what? Doesn't work that way, right? From the time a shovel goes into a ground to extract whatever material that now goes to a one company to develop into one portion to another company that is used to be molded into the next portion all the way down the chain till it lands on your loading dock that now you as also part of the supply chain go and install you don't solve that overnight do you brother no yeah and by the way how much control do you have over that not much (laughs) i mean i tell my team all the time we 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 control what we can control Solve our own problems internally because there's so many things that we don't control. Yeah. So many problems that are going to come to us that we can't see. And if we're spending time on things that we should have already cleaned up ourselves, therefore we cannot spend the appropriate time on dealing with the supply chain issues, right? Or the fact that the rain comes in for three days and this job site now we can't get on. So we can't do the job we were going to do yesterday. So we got to adjust the schedule. So, yeah, the supply chain issues of today are uh, extremely, extremely negatively affecting our top line. Not so much our, well, yes, some some of our profitability, because for instance, <laughs> we're getting doors from door vendors in a truckload that's supposed to have doors that we can get to install the next day that don't have springs. There is a nation slash global shortage in the wire to make the springs. Every one of these overhead doors, whether you can see a spring or not, has a spring. Well, guess what? I can go stack that door in. From the outside, it looks good, but it's not going to work without springs. <laughs> so we have to do... Yeah. So now we're doing multiple mobilizations. For some of our customers, we do a fair amount of new installs, new construction. So we're doing different... We're doing factoring in multiple mobilizations that we didn't price in. Yeah. So we're not going to say it's affecting the profitability a little because I'm trying to do right by my customer. I can't get the springs, but I can come stack the doors. I can buy some springs from some other vendor if I can find it for this one door and get that working that day. But know that your other 10 doors, I'm not going to have the springs to get those working for six weeks. You know, the funny thing about the supply chain disruptions that I don't think a lot of people understand quite the volume of it is it's not the miles, it's the inches. It's not the big things. It's not the door. It's the components that make the door work. Prime example is my contractor at my house in Pagosa I said, hey, build me an outdoor kitchen. He said, cool. So ran the gas line, all that. I dropped eight grand on building an outdoor kitchen that couldn't function for eight weeks. Took him less than a week to build it. I'm like, what the hell is going on? He was like, well, there's this one little metal piece that connects the gas coming out of your house to the gas line. And there are none. We are on back order. That's all we're waiting on. You know, I wasn't faulting him, but it was like, it wasn't a grill, it wasn't a brick, it wasn't the tubes, it wasn't any of that. One, and by the way, you want to know how much that piece costs? 15 bucks. Eight grand spent on an outdoor kitchen that does not function because I'm having to wait on a $15 piece because that's the supply chain disruptions. So 
like when when I'm talking to my 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 two Marines that uh, we're building this maintenance company, as I said, look, here's how you build a company. As you said, focus on what we can control, so that way it opens up our bandwidth that we can spend time coming up with solutions on the things that we can't control, right? Because if, like you said, if you're spending your time spinning your wheels on stuff you should have done already, that doesn't give you the available time and energy and, and, and whatnot to look into solving the things that are outside of your control to come up with potential solution. Like we talked about coming in here, is that's one of the reasons why very biased and the reason I always find myself hiring Marines is because Marines are good at, at problem solving and doing solutions. So we have this supply chain, you got the things that you can't, can't control, and you're doing it every day. What is your driver every day that even with all these disruptions and frustrations and everything else, what keeps driving you to go in and keep doing this? So the saying, there's a saying out there in the business world, you know, you got to get to where you're working more on your business than in your business. Will you, will you describe to the audience what that means? So for me, because I bought a business I knew nothing about, <laughs> I spent two years learning how to do two things. Learning about the business that I bought and what we do. Learning how to manage from a financial situation a small business. And then learning how to, how should you say, one day I was describing to my daughter my challenge, and she said, Dad, your problem or your opportunity or what you're not seeing or what you're not saying is, is that you're, you've transitioned to where you're working and or responsible for blue-collar workers, the technician group, right? And no disrespect, these guys are great guys. They do fabulous stuff. But I came from the white-collar world. So that was part of my transition as far as, okay, I'm a business owner now, overhead door, know nothing about it. I've got to now provide paychecks for all these people. So I worked on the, in the business 90% of the time for two years. The other 10%, I was out looking on how to grow the business from a sales perspective to marketing and stuff like that. But suffice to say, all, 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 those, all those hours and times, it was in the business. And I knew at some point I was going to transition away from that. I had to transition away from that. You've already mentioned it, right? I knew... For a lot of different reasons, right? Access over the door is not for sale today. But guess what? <laughs> Everything's for sale at some point. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Everything. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I want to get to the point to where if somebody does want, is interested, and or I decide it's time that I'm in a really good space, i.e. business runs without me. Mm -hmm. Right? I'm still maybe providing some financial guidance. Right? Why did this happen? To your point, your example a while ago, how did the problem get resolved? Good to go. Terrific. I love that. But you got to build a team, a culture, right? And you said it a while ago, a lot of people are really focused on what they do. And I have opened that up and said, wait, 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 time out. We need to know what everybody does. I need cross-training going on, right? Because everybody hates when somebody's out of the office and they get the call and they can't solve a problem, Right? Because they haven't been trained. They don't know the system. They haven't, there's nobody been cross-trained in what this other person does in a small business. Everybody hates to say, I, I have no idea. You're going to have to wait till he gets back in mm -hmm. the office. No, 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 no. So what the value and what I keep doing, what I've done is put the systems in place, 
from an IT perspective and the, the way that the systems need to communicate, work together, integrate. At the IT level, yes, more at the people level, the process. Yeah. So that, and then we have a meeting on Mondays. It's my meeting. It's my agenda. And then they get to add. Two Wednesday's meetings is their meeting. They bring the agenda and I get to add, right? And we've these are all baby steps. This didn't happen overnight. I didn't thrust a whole bunch of change on the organization that I knew they couldn't handle at one time. In software world, one thing you learn how to do is run really fast, software sales. You run really fast and hard. So I've had to tamper mine, but coming back around to what, what, why do I keep, why am I doing what I'm doing today? As I said earlier, we double the size of the company. My next goal, the next challenge is to double again. All right. So we have the people in place. We have the core team in place. I've got three great sales guys. Two of them I've just recently hired in the last six months. Both came with a lot of comp- with a lot of experience from the competition. I've grown one guy, started him at 23, 24 years old, been with me three years, and he's knocking it out of the park. I give him a bigger number every year, he knocks it out of the park. Right? Yeah. I've got pulled a guy in from the technician group that I saw immediately more talent in him. He was older, hanging doors is physical work. So I moved him into the office and I'm training him how to be the scheduler and the assist technicians. So all that's happened in that three-year period. One of the best things we've been able to do is answer the phone, say yes, do what we say. You know, when the the guy was wearing all the hats, the GM, he'd get a stack of messages in any given day. You only get through so many. So I'm trying to paint the picture. It's not rocket science. It does take some discipline. It does take some change. And you have to do it in a way to where the folks around you are part of it. Right. And at this point now, when there's most of the decisions that are made now, I may bring the problem to the group. But it's a group discussion. What's the right way to solve this problem or this opportunity? Now they, they're using my language now, right? They come to me, I got an opportunity, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's not, I got a problem. Right. <laughs> and they still got that smile on their face because they're just getting used to it, right? Yeah. But I was like, dude, we're not going to, we're not, I'm not looking for status quo. I'm looking for growth. Every one of you are much better today, you know, because I pushed you. I had people push me, you know, I had guys, guys put me in positions like, I have no idea what I'm doing. No, and I don't know if it was my wife, probably, who said, yeah, but he thinks you can. He wouldn't put you in something he didn't think you could succeed at. So I'm doing that with people that are there. We all love to be challenged. You know, we do. We really do. Yeah. And and given the opportunity to fail, too. Right? That's important. In the business world, there's this term that's been around now for years and years and years, but it's always been there underlying is fail fast. Yeah. You're going to fail. I tell them, it's okay. Let's talk about it. What happened? Why? And get them to tell me, was it a system problem? Right? Was it a people problem? Was it you? There's no right or wrong answer, but let's talk about it so it doesn't happen again. And or if the system is not in place to support what we need to be doing, let's change it. So, but failing, you know, you got to be able to fail. You got to be able to look in the mirror and be humble about it. But hey, just get up and move on. So there's a saying that failure is not an option, and I've always disagreed with that. Mm-hmm. If you're not pushing to failure, then you're not pushing to find out what your boundaries are in order to grow, mm-hmm. right? 
And I mean, even in raising my daughter, we had what was called learning opportunities. And if you do it the first time, that's a learning opportunity. You repeat the same behavior. Then now that's a mistake. You should learn from it the first time, right? And so when I hear you, as we've gone through this episode, you're not in the door business. You're in the trust business. And trust has to start from the internal components of the company. And that's why when I knew, when I was diving in and asking Amanda, hey, let's peel back those layers of this onion, right? Yeah, got that, got that. Yep, he's got all this experience, corporate America. Yeah, 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 yeah. What is the true root of why I should interview your boss? And when she came out and was like, because I trust them, because of the culture, because I love going to work, I love being there. But I don't think a lot of people understand is that when an employee leaves, the majority of the time, the amount of money they were or were not making is down about number seven on the list, right? Because you were able to build trust inside the internal components of the company because they are the ones that the customers are going to be dealing directly with that they can go, we trust that Access is going to take care of this because Jeff has created trust within his employees. He has delegated things to employees because that's the hardest part for people to do is delegate, right? Because you got to trust that they're going to go do what they're supposed to do. You removed boundaries and barriers that were preventing them from becoming more successful. It's one of the things I always, with all my different businesses, like, what can I give you or what can I provide or remove or what do I need to do that gives you better access to growth and success? What can I do to help you get where you're at? So like this week, we were on a three-way call with Chris and Eric going, okay, here's where we're developing. What do you guys need from me? Here's what I need. I need X, Y, Z. Cool. I will have that by Saturday. What else do we need? Is there blah, blah, blah. Okay, got this, got this, got this. Because they can ask for the things they need to wrap their heads around this so we can go build a business doing it because they already trust me that I've got the money to go do it. I look, I got the money, I got the business. What do you need? I've, I've done my part. You trust me that I have that. What, what do you need that we can provide so that we can go and knock this out of the park? And like, for example... Chris, when he was up at my house this last Sunday, and we were sitting there talking, and he goes, man, I don't know the first thing about being a handyman or doing maintenance stuff. I said, well, Chris, let me ask you something. Could you fix a hole in the wall? And he goes, yeah. And I said, and after you patch it, could you paint it? And he goes, yeah. And I was like, and if there was a toilet broken, could you go down to Home Depot, get one, and then replace it? And he goes, yeah. And I was like, guess what? You're handy. <laughs> you know, I was like, but we're going to get you, we're going to start you out swinging hammers, but our goal, the only reason is, is I need you to understand the components of everything. So one, understanding the cost of goods sold that go with doing an estimate, understanding the labor components that go into it, because all those costs we were talking about, margin versus markup, right? So that way we know what the true margin and profitability are on things. And they said, well, where are we going to get that experience? I said, I have two contractors that I absolutely trust. And most people don't even have one contractor that they trust, let alone two. And I said, I've already talked about these guys. And Eric, you're going to go with this one, and you're going to do six weeks of free labor with them, doing whatever they want you to do, 
and you're just going to ask questions and learn. And Chris, you're going to go over here and you're going to go with this one. And then at six weeks, I'm going to swap you because I want you to see the two different perspectives. I want you to get as much experience. So now we're going to have 12 weeks. No, oh, yeah, by the way, during that time, I got enough business that we're doing the simple things. If it requires a major trade, we're going to hire a trade to go do that. And then once we get that there in 12 weeks, right? So before we even get to December, then we're going to go into execution mode and start working on hiring people. So that way you already know how to lead people by leading, but can you tell them how to go be effective at their job? That's what I want you to get to. And then once we get to that component, I said, in six months, if you're still swinging a hammer, we screwed this up, right? Because that's not why I want you guys to be partnered with me and building this company. I want you guys because you're autonomous, you're hard charging, you're driven, you're going to grow this thing and you know how to solve problems, but it's really hard to focus on solving problems if you're busy swinging a hammer. There's plenty of people out there that need a job to swing a hammer, but I need you to know how to tell them how to do their job. You already know how to lead them. And then after six months, we get those first new hires coming in. Inside of 18 months, you should be doing nothing but focusing on growth mode. And they were like, okay. Now, most people will go, I don't want to go do free labor for somebody else. But they get it. They're like, yeah, so I'm not really going to do free labor. I'm going to pick up because like if I could go back and talk to a younger version of me, I would be like, you know what? Go find someone that really knows how to do something and say, I'll make you a deal. I will come work for you for free for two years in exchange for two things. One, I get access to your network and I get to learn everything that you've even forgotten. Because then after two years, what you just got was an undergrad, MBA, double PhDs and what you're going to go do. And now you can go deliver that. Right. Mm -hmm. But so many people are so afraid of things like that is I'm like, that's how that's how you do this. So because the first thing we're going to do is we're going to build this company that it doesn't need you as fast as possible. And then when you got it at that point, we can keep clipping coupons. We can sell it. We can do whatever. But I told them, I said, the reason we really want to do that other than the profitability and all the other good stuff, it's because I've had a couple of executive coaches. And my last one told me when I had him for two years in the first few meetings, he made a statement that changed my perspective on everything. He said, the definition of wealth is having 100% control of your time. And I mean, my mind blew. And he goes, and the caveat to that is, there is, a not a, there is not a shortage of people and things that will utilize your time for their benefit. And I went, boom, got it. So I work as fast and as hard as possible to replace myself in the business and hire people that actually know how to go do things better than me. So like even on the Span Group real estate side. So I've the team has done very good of removing me from doing a lot of things where I do the R&D to understand what the market's doing, and I do the business development. And six months ago, hired, I know it's going to sound as a shock, another Marine <laughs> that will eventually replace me in the next few months of doing nothing but business development. He's doing the same thing with the hammer swing, and I'm giving him all the difficult clients because I was like, I need you to understand what it's like to identify a difficult client so that way when you're headhunting to bring in new business, you don't bring difficult clients. And I said, so in the next six months, I'm going to be out of that part where even the R&D and all that, I'll be completely removed. 
And the important by that is when people call me and go, hey, like, for example, I got a call yesterday and, and somebody was like, hey, need you to get my house, this blah, blah, when you can come over. And I said, let me tell you about my process. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do A, B, C, and D, and this is how I'm going to introduce the team. And he's like, you're not going to do it. I was like, you don't want me doing it. You want Lynn taking care of all the paperwork side of this because guess what? She's detail-oriented. That's what she does. You want Laura focusing on compliance and closing loopholes that hurt us and opening loopholes that benefit us. You want Michelle over there to go, this is what you need to do. Paint this, change this, do that, move this, you know, whatever, because that's what's going to present your house to look the best that we can create multiple offers for it, right? And as I was going through all these things, Greg goes, so what what do you do? And I was like, well, I talk to you to hand you off to everybody else, but you don't want me doing that. Trust me. I don't even like showing houses. I get bored. I walk in there. I'm like, look, man, it's four walls and a roof. I was in the Marines. I used to sleep on the ground. It was four walls and a roof. What do you like or not like about it? Who cares? Buy the damn thing. The only thing I care about is how much value has it created in the last four years to give us kind of a forecast of what it's going to continue to grow for the next four years, right? Mm. And so, so I think you've done a very good and a very, just based off of our conversation here today, of being that true leader where you have people like a GM that's still hanging around and you got people like Amanda who came from this industry because her family owned a company that was similar to what you're doing. And let me tell you what, the only way you're getting rid of that girl is with an eviction notice. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, thank you for that. I mean, one last comment though, as far as what you said is, is that, I've gotten to the point as far as being working on the business versus in the business is that I ask my people as a group setting and individual setting all the time, what do you need from me? It's my job to give you everything you need to, you need to be successful. We can disagree about some things, but if you tell me you need something and there is a good reason, call it a financial analysis, call it a benefit analysis, whatever you want to do. And I, okay, I'll give it to you. Now, what I think, what I know that provides me is now <laughs> I can hold them accountable. Right? They want to be successful. They do need certain things to be successful. I'm going to give you that. I'm going to be right there behind you. You know, sometimes pushing you <laughs> like a parent does to a child. We're going to go ride the roller coaster. I really, really want to go ride. You get to the gate. Little kid says, no, 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 no. You're behind me. Yep, I'm pushing. I'm pushing. Right? You get on the roller coaster, you ride the roller coaster like my son did at seven years old. He's crying. He gets off. He's laughing. I want to go again. I want to go again. Right? So I'm there to push them after that, but I that I feel comfortable that I've given them every tool they need to be successful at that point. But I'm also comfortable with failure. Let's talk about it. So to your point, yeah, I because, you know, people do have a tendency, me as well, to blame others, right? And I want to have a team that told me you needed it. This is what you needed. Now you're not being successful. Let's figure out why. And there may be an opportunity where we need to part ways. It's okay. I hope not. So. No, you're right. I mean, it's like when I pulled Eric and uh, Chris together to do this maintenance company is I invested a lot of time and a lot of money into a young guy in his 20s. And he is, he's a great human being, right? This is not a knock on him as a person. But we can want things for other people, but unless they want it for themselves, but we don't have that control. We don't have that power, right? Yeah. And so 
the only thing I was really upset about is I figured that after a year and a half of mentoring and him making a pretty good chunk of money is that he at least could have picked up the phone to call me instead of sending me an email on a Sunday to go, hey, man, I'm moving on. Mm-hmm. That's where, you know, because at first when I saw it, the first place I went to is where did I fail that I made it too uncomfortable for him to do that? And so I called James, you know, the Marine that's working with me now. And I was like, man, you know, I mean, I know I'm intense. I know I'm a hammer, but man, what have I said or done that he didn't feel comfortable? And he goes, that ain't on you, man. He goes, if anything that you're a master at is creating avenues where it's okay for people to communicate. And he goes, and they know that you may or may not agree. And if you don't agree, you're never going to yell at them. I don't yell at people, right? I don't make them do push-ups or anything else. I go, I disagree, but let me explain why. And he goes, you created that avenue. He made the choice to do a more immature exit than to do a mature exit. So if there's anything that I hope he gets out of this is that, man, if you want to go be successful, don't send an email, don't send a text. Pick up the phone and go, hey, man, I need to have an uncomfortable conversation with you. Because guess what? Sometimes we do part ways. Hmm. Sometimes you have people that get you to a certain point and they were perfect to get you there. But like when you're growing and scaling, like, for example, my friend David Hargrave that's been on the show, he's a great episode to listen to. When he had the right person when he grew it to 100, but that person was not going to be the person to grow it to 200 because it takes a different set of skill sets that this person didn't have. And it's okay. It's unfortunate that we had to get there, but guess what? If we're going to keep growing, that's what we do. And sometimes we got to have those uncomfortable conversations, but if you're going to have an uncomfortable conversation, do it with dignity and respect so that way they can move on peacefully, right? Don't send me an email. He's lucky I saw the email in the first place. I hate reading emails. Put what you want. If you're going to email me, put what you want in the subject lines. I'm probably not going to read the body of it. Mm-hmm. One, I don't have the time. I don't have the patience. And I'm ADD like a squirrel. I'm methamphetamines. And I'm going to get through about two sentences and get bored and move on to the next thing anyways. Mm-hmm. So, Jeff, let's go back to 20-year-old self. Let's say you had a magic time machine that said, hey, I, I'm going to give you five minutes to go talk to 20-year-old self. And 20-year-old self in the past has already said, I will be willing to listen, which we know he wouldn't, but, you know, if there were, I'd be willing to listen to one thing. If you dialed it back, going back to 20-year-old self, what would you tell 20-year-old self? So I was prepared for this converse, this question, obviously, listening to your previous um, podcast. So it's really hard. It really is for one thing. You know, uh, I think I can distill it down to a couple. Number one, nobody's perfect. Do not put people on a pedestal because you're going to be disappointed. However, those people who you want to put on a pedestal have probably been successful for whatever you're putting them, you like them for. So they've made some good decisions. So analyze that, what made them successful and why. And that bleeds into mentors, right? I didn't have any mentors. I'm from a divorced home, right? I mean, I was making it up as I go. But now looking back, the people that God put in my path as my mentors, unofficially, my bosses, (laughs) friends that I was watching, right, that I learned from. And again, not only positive, but negative things. So, you know, nobody's perfect. Search out mentors and those mentors that will not only be, that will share with you, 
their successes, but more importantly, their failures. They've got to be humble. They've got to be humble. So if I could do anything differently, I would know failure is part of it. Nobody's perfect. And I got to have some mentors. I mean, I got to be strategic about who those mentors are and go ask them. That's sound advice from a man that's been around the block a time, two or 20. So if people want to learn more about your company, where do they go? How do they find that? So Access Overhead Door, we have our website. You can get there typing out Access Overhead Door. You can get there typing out accessohd.com. My email address is j.bennett at accessohd. You can reach out to me for anything that we've said or done, or you think my business can provide you any service. We do have a LinkedIn page. We do have a Facebook page, but I'll be right off the bat. We've just started our social media persona for all the right reasons. Amanda is doing a lot with that, with some of our sales guys. That will grow, but that's how you can contact us, see what we have to offer, i.e. from our website and or get in contact with us for anything we might be able to help with. And in case you're driving down the road and you missed all that, you can always go to our website, myexperiencedrealtor.com, experience with an ED. Go over to the podcast, click on read more, Jeff Bennett, and we will have all these links and we will have everything set up so that we can get direct access to them. Because if you need things that are in his industry, you're not going to him because he delivers it. You're going to it because you trust. We've already talked about that through the whole show. And naturally, if you're going to buy and sell real estate anywhere on the planet and you need to have a trusted professional, go to our homepage, click on find a trusted professional, and we'll make sure that even if it's not here in the Metroplex, we'll get you someone that's not an idiot to help you out. Thank you for coming, Jeff. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, what'd you think? Uh, perfect. Yeah. Great. Yeah? yeah? Did you like it? No, but yeah, I did. <laughs> you did great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.